What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future passion. Explore paths to careers that will excite and motivate you. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu to find out how to connect to your future. Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is a phenomenally interesting man with a phenomenally interesting background in reporting, writing, and thinking. His name is Peter Osnos, and his history has taken him from all over the world to back to occasionally now visiting harbor country. He's a journalist, he's a writer, a publisher of books, and an all-around interesting person. Peter Osnos, with respect. Peter, how are you today? Well, I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. Uh, we're been in uh, in this area now since June, and uh, never have spent that much time here. So I feel much more like I'm at home. Good. This is good. We like to have people at home here, well, and especially well, we people like that. you. Yes. Peter, where are you from originally? Well, my my truly background story starts uh, in Europe. Uh, my parents were. Uh, lived in, in Poland, and when the war started, it's a complicated and quite dramatic story, but they ended up in India uh, from 1940 through the end of 1943, and I was born in Bombay. Uh, I have a birth certificate, which I'm very proud of, which says cast Polish. Mm -hmm. uh, they then went, uh, got to the United States in February of 1944 with me in a basket. So I grew up as a child in in New York, watching my parents as they accommodated to their wholly new life. Um, and uh, at the age of uh, 14, I went away to school and uh, ended up being a journalist, uh, starting first as a, after graduate school at Columbia, I uh, worked for a little radical news weekly called I.F. Stone's Weekly, which is very famous, uh, mm -hmm. and it was in its time. Uh, it's what in, in today's terms would be called a blog, mm -hmm. but in those terms, it was a little newsletter, I mean newspaper, uh, eventually had 75,000 subscribers, and I was the assistant. Uh, let, me, let me take you back a little bit further. You, you said your parents <coughs> came from Poland. Mm -hmm. uh, what does their? How did they uh, make a living there? What was their? Oh, they, they were. There's a. They were. You know, most countries have different factions, and mm -hmm. my parents were from the upper middle class. They were Jewish, upper middle class. My mother was a scientist by training. My father, as an engineer entrepreneur. They uh, they came from a, a sort of strata of society where things were going really well. And mm -hmm. uh, they spent the first few years of their marriage in Paris. And then they came back for family reasons. And they got, you know, when the war started in 1939, uh, you can imagine what that was like. My mm -hmm. brother, who's 12 years older than I am, was eight at the time. Uh, my father managed to spend to rescue the family, uh, he, he was sent off to a military detachment, which by the time he got there had already disbanded, mm -hmm. couldn't get back to Warsaw. So my mother and brother were in Warsaw during the worst of the Nazi invasion. Mm -hmm. But my father uh, from Bucharest succeeded very much against the odds of getting them visas and got them out. Uh, then they went by, rand, by, by road, I'm sorry, by, by land to... Uh, to India, to mm. Bombay, where they arrived and got started. And <laughs> the first place they lived in was sufficiently uh, ramshackle that some Australian walked in one day thinking it was a brothel. <laughs> but by the time by the time they left, by the time they left, they had made their way. I mean, they had both had good jobs. Uh, what, do they, what do they do? So I, uh, we've heard this story of um, 
displaced persons uh, coming to the United States or coming to other parts of the world where they start off in their home country with professions or uh, with great wealth or even moderate wealth. And then all of a sudden they're thrown into a whole new world. That well, is, that's, that's their story. And, and you wonder how it is they can land on their feet. Well, I've asked, that is a major question. And as I said, I was in a basket when they got to New York. Mm -hmm. I was an infant. By the time I was old enough to know what was going on around me, they were building their first weekend house. Wow. So what was it that they had? Yeah. And they had extraordinary powers of resilience and what the traumas that they, you know, the, the, the stress that they had gone through, they had absorbed mm -hmm. and uh, just never had to look back. And it wasn't that they repressed it. And it wasn't, it wasn't an act of I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. But they were much more engaged in their lives than they were in their past. The person who I think uh, probably had a, a tougher time, which I never really accessed, was my brother because he was eight. Mm -hmm. In the you know when the bombs are dropping and he's by any normal standard terrified, but he would never say that. He said, "Well, you know, when the stuff was going on, I was reading Jules Verne, you know, playing with toys." Mm -hmm. My brother never confronted uh, the full trauma of his childhood. Mm -hmm. Didn't you know spoil his life, but it meant that I only knew when I set out on the project to find out more about them. I only knew the legends. The mm -hmm. highlights. So I set out to really find out what their lives were like, particularly in Poland uh, and subsequently in India. What um, kind of a scientist was your mother? Biochemist. Mm -hmm. uh, she was, uh, uh, you know, lifelong biochemist. She was not a PhD because you know, she was both a woman and a Jew. And so uh, didn't finish a PhD, but she had a very full and active life as a biochemist right up until the time she died in, the, in her 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, she, we used to ask, my, I said to my brother once, what is my mother, you know, what is mother doing for Dr. Rivlin at, at Columbia? And she said, well, that's very simple. She's his mother. <laughs> she would say, no, you know, Richard, it's time to get a haircut. Uh, but she, you know, that was the kind of, she did cancer research. Okay. And my father was a uh, was a, an engineer and and when he came to the United States, it was 1944, and he and two other fellows said, you know, it gets hot in the summer, and they they started a company which uh, an air conditioning firm, uh, and it's still around. I mean, uh, 75 years later. It's called Airvel, A-I-R-V-E-L, and it did things like the Metropolitan Museum, and it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. I used to say that my father's, one of his greatest thrills was that when he could do the, uh, he, he would, uh, it was the, the commercials for WQXR, the New York Times classical music station, on weather at 8 o'clock in the morning. It was, Airvel brought you the weather at 8 o'clock <laughs> in the morning, and he was just beside himself. So they, and they, you know, they accommodated life in the United States, and I I guess the story is that I was always sort of watching because I didn't I didn't come from their culture. Mm. I, I I came from a different culture, and it wasn't as though they didn't uh, want me to know what their culture was. It just you know I went to school, and they used to speak to me in Polish, but I always spoke to them in English, um, and. So my retention of Polish, my, my comprehension is total. My language makes me sound like a child. Well, you know, this is a, a common phenomenon we have <clears throat> in the United States. We have, uh, in our family, we, we, the, our ancestors on one side of the, of the family, my father's side, were Polish. Uh -huh. And they uh, would speak, they spoke fluent Polish, uh, although they were... The one back in the 1850s, they were uh, just over from Poland. Then after that, the next generation um, spoke Polish. And by the time we got to the World War II generation, mm -hmm. they uh, married all the people in the family married to different ethnic groups. And so we ended up. I <clears throat> I like to tell people this: when we were sitting at the at the Sunday table having dinner, 
Um, if grandma and grandpa wanted to say something <clears throat> that they didn't want else, anybody else to know, they'd speak in Polish. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to say speak for the adults only and forget about the kids, they went to French. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the last one, they went to English for the rest of us. Well, it sounds like a comparable background. <laughs> uh, the, they, uh, what's always amazed me is the degree to which they left everything behind. And I have reconstructed the family stories of my mother's family and my father's family. Um, but there was nothing that they could really take with them mm -hmm. of any consequence. And so everything they had as I was growing up was, a, was, was something that they put together after they got to New York. And mm -hmm. the, the other thing that was interesting about it is they were all very, very few people getting visas in 1943 and 44. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I, what I've studied is, is the percentage of the quota that could have come in in 1944 of Jews was only 8% full. Hmm. So the fact that they succeeded in getting a entry visa is another astonishing achievement. And there's all, you know, of course, there's a story involved with that. There's a story involved with everything. Uh, what is amazing about it is that they got to New York at the age of 40. And they sat on a bench and they said, we're going to make a go of it here. And, of course, they, you know, they did. Why? Because they were resourceful. They were educated, and they were lucky. <laughs> they were lucky because they got out. Yeah. They were lucky because they managed to get to India where they were able to find a, a safety mm -hmm. and, a, and, a, and, and a living. And, uh, and they did not, first of all, they felt very strongly that they were not victims. They were not DPs. Mm -hmm. They weren't even, they were refugees, of course, but they didn't consider themselves having been the, when you talk about people who were survivors of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. it used to drive my brother nuts. He said, I'm not a survivor. I'm not a victim. After all, I'm here. I mm -hmm. got out. Mm -hmm. And they represent that kind of strand of the people who, for one reason or another, were able to get out and restore their lives. And they did not, no, no, they and, and none of their immediate family were in a concentration camps. Um, although when I went to Auschwitz a couple of years ago, part of my reporting for this project, the history project in the family, I found 18 people with the last name Osnos, O-S-N-O-S. -O which means that there were people there. Mm -hmm. My One of my father's brothers was one of the officers that was murdered at Katyn, uh, one of the Katyn Polish officers. Forest, yeah. yes. Another one was a Red Army colonel <laughs> and went out to, was eventually in Siberia. But I decided, and this is a sort of fun story, I'll, I'll tell it very quickly, was to find out where this name OSNOS -S comes from because it, it was obviously not Slavic mm -hmm. and it wasn't Jewish. So what was it? So one of the projects that I've been working on when, in, this, in this history project was, where does the name come from? And I finally tracked it down. What it turns out was, we've traced the family name back to 1740 to a man named Mendel. And he was in, in the Ukraine somewhere. When, mm -hmm. You know, those countries, you know, the, the, they flowed back and forth across right. the borders. Right. But he, uh, what happened is about that time, up until that point, Jews tended to go by the, their name and patronymic. So, you know, my name would be Peter Josephowitz or whatever it was, Josephus. My father's Joseph. But in 1740, around that time, Jews were either mandated or permitted to take family names. And that is why you can start seeing so many Jewish names that were tied to people's work. Yes, I, I remember hearing yeah, about this. Or yes. people's... Uh, where they lived, that you know, the name of the town or the name of the village or whatever. So what we finally discovered, having done some pretty systematic research, was Osnos, O-S-N-O-S, -O comes from the name Asenat, who was the wife of Joseph in the Old Testament. Hmm. And rendered in dialect, it comes out either O-S-N-O-S -O -S or O-S-N-E-S, 
mercifully for us, one version of it is ASS, N-E-S-S. <laughs> that would have been less appealing to me. Um, but that explains some of the mysteries that I'd always had. Why is it when I looked it up, did I find baptisms, baptismal certificates in Norway with the same mm. name? I couldn't figure it out. My, my son, when he, my son's name is Evan, when he found out that there were baptismal certificates in Norway, he said, well, from now on, I want to be known as Sven. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's, there's, there are, and we always thought we were the only ones, but in fact, there are quite a lot. Fascinating. We're going to be talking more about your career and life and how you got to be what the, the outstanding journalist that you are in just a moment. We'll be taking a break right now. This is John Smotanka. We're on With Respect, and we're talking to Peter Osnos, O-S-N-O-S, uh, a journalist uh, of worldwide reputation. We'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Peter Osnos, who has been telling us about the history of his family, starting in uh, Poland prior to the uh, Second World War and wending its way throughout the world uh, until they settled in New York. This is John Smetanka. So, Peter, I now know something about your background, but I don't know how you got into journalism and to writing. Tell me about that. Well, I, it was sort of instinctive, I guess. Um, I began reading the newspapers, which my father would, you know, we read the New York Times in the morning and uh, the uh, World Telegram in the afternoon to see the closing stock prices and paper was on the bed and I would read it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and very early on, I came to the understanding, and this has been again in retrospect, that I'm basically an observer. And... Uh, I, I just like watching. You know, Yogi Berra once said, you can, you can, observe, you can observe a lot by watching. <laughs> and that, for some reason, was my calling. And I can't entirely tell you why, but that was why. That was what happened. In college, I started doing, I went to Mississippi, uh, one of the early people to go down to Mississippi, is a, and then came back and wrote articles. About the civil rights about, movement. About, well, about Mississippi. I mean, so, we were okay. down there in 62, so we met everybody who was anybody, and I wrote my first articles. You didn't meet me. I, didn't I was you... in Mississippi in 1962. No kidding. What I were you doing? Was. I was in a seminary studying to be a priest. Hold on. <laughs> well, I didn't meet you. I met Medgar Evers. I met Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, my first national story, believe it or not, was James Meredith, uh, hmm. because when we met him— I said to him, he was going to be going into Ole Miss the following fall. And I said, well, look, why don't you write me something about why you want to go to Ole Miss? And he wrote it. And the following fall, when he went there, we had a world exclusive, uh, James Meredith, why I'm going to Ole Miss. Yeah. You know, and that, I mean, that was, and if you, if you ever go to the trouble in the New York Times, the first mention of my name is in 1962 fall, <laughs> James Meredith in the, Justice newspaper at Brandeis. I mean, that was the so. Anyway, from there it was pretty, pretty straightforward. <laughs> I knew I wanted to do that. Well, now, all right. There's a there's a gap in what uh -huh. you just said. Uh -huh. There is the person who is an observer, but then there's something beyond observing, and that's communicating what you observed or understanding it first, and then communicating it to others. There's there's not it's not an automatic uh, career. Well, I wasn't a passive observer. Um, I, what I discovered was, as, as I went along, was that I, um, I enjoyed the process of observing and then reporting. Okay. Um, and uh, my son, who's also a writer and journalist, Evan, nailed me once when he was about 12. He was in a local baseball team. And we went to the annual dinner where they were the runners-up in the town league. And all the town teams in, in where we were in Connecticut were, you know, they were the cops and they were the Italians and they were the Portuguese. And 
So we had platters of ziti, and the dinner went on forever. And for the next two weeks, I was describing this to people who I saw. I said, yeah, you have no idea all the ziti and this and so forth. And finally, my son at 12 at the time says, you know, Dad, you remind me of Jane Goodall. Really? Why is that? <laughs> because you go to the dinner with your tape recorder and your notebook, and you say, it's amazing they show affection for their young. <laughs> I knew two things about my son at that moment. One is that he was going to be a writer. Yeah. And uh, because that's a writer's way of seeing the world. But also he had nailed me. And it's, it's, it's actually been the story forever. And Jane Goodall was just on television the other day. Right. In a, in a program Still around. In, in which she talked about her days as observing gorillas. I know. That was gorillas. what my son was talking about. And that's what he was talking about. Right. So it's a, uh, I always thought that would be very romantic. But then I stopped to think about wandering the world, sitting around in, in, in jungles and either mimicking uh, gorillas, which mm-hmm. they, she did some of, mm-hmm. uh, or just watching them be quietly, becoming part of the family, so to speak. Well, the, he what he caught, and which in fact is the case, is that journalists essentially watch, observe. Mm-hmm. And one of the characteristics of journalism is that you can be in any uh, sort of extraordinary stressful situations. But if you're a journalist, there's a sort of deflection quality, which I came to understand when we were in you know, Vietnam and then subsequently the Soviet Union, where things happen. You should be stressed. But because you're a journalist, because you're an observer, you tend to back off and watch it. What they used to say was in Vietnam, if you were shot at, you could watch it. If they hit you, that's a whole other story. <laughs> and fortunately, that never happened to me. Luckily. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I think some of the stuff that happens with people is uh, is hard to define. That you you just have an instinct for it, and mm-hmm. I did. And uh, the first instinct was I just liked watching what was going on, and then I was you know because I ended up working for the Washington Post. They uh, gave me the opportunity, the Post did. And they paid you for it. They did. And they sent me to Vietnam in 1970, um, where you know, I was only 27 when I arrived there. Uh, and that's an education in its own, right? Mm-hmm. I was not, I always say that I went to Vietnam on my terms. I didn't go as a soldier. Mm. I never was confronted with the challenge of what I would have done had I been drafted. I got a one Y because I'd had a college injury, which, you know, I had sense, lack of sensitivity in a couple of fingers, and that was enough to get me one Y. Mm-hmm. So I went to Vietnam again on my terms. And that was the right way for me to go to Vietnam. I, I, I've often asked this, what would I have done if I'd been drafted? But I went to Vietnam. I learned a hell of a lot about a lot of stuff. Um, then the post sent me to the Soviet Union, and I, where I was for three years. And that was, again, another extraordinary experience. We're in the Soviet Union. Moscow. I mean, I was the Moscow correspondent for the Post. The Washington Post. Yes. Okay. For three years. And the Washington, I was Saigon correspondent, Indochina correspondent for the Post, and then Moscow correspondent for the Post. Okay. And the Moscow years were, you know, intense. You, it couldn't possibly be anything but. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the mid-'70s. It was very much the Soviet Union. I should add that I had met my now wife of many, many years in Vietnam, or she was a young woman working for a group of civilian lawyers who provided free legal counsel to GIs. She was Mm -hmm. the office manager, and she was the people the GIs first came in to see, and there was this beautiful redhead, so that always made them feel better. Um, So she was with me through all of this. And we went to Moscow, where the where I was the Post's correspondent for three years, and that, too, was a very intense experience. Who was the um, uh, head of the party and, and the and leader? Well, it was Brezhnev at the Brezhnev. time. Yeah. But the re- it, was, uh, it was a period of, there was an attempted detente, remember, you know, where mm-hmm. we're going to try to get along with the Russians and we're going to work all of this out. And by the time I left, it was when Jimmy Carter was, became president and made human rights a big issue, the Russians decided to crack down on on dissidents and journalists. So they started harassing us, me, and uh, in a sort of significant way. And here again, like the Vietnam experience, I've often wondered, how dangerous was it? What it we've had another person um, 
over the years who's talked about something like this. But what did, when you say harassed you, they, and I, I, I'd be interesting to hear what it was, how did this, the Russian, pardon me, the uh, Soviet state apparatchiks, how do they affect you? What do they do? Well, it was, I mean, again, it's a, it's a, it's a colorful story. Mm-hmm. Um, they began to attack me publicly. I've actually got a document uh, from the Politburo meeting in March of 1977. A very full, long, top, top secret document, because there was a brief period after the fall of the Soviet Union when you could get this kind of material. Mm-hmm. It's a very long, very complicated document signed by Andropov, the head of the KGP. It mm-hmm. says top secret at the time. And the whole purpose of this discussion was what to do with me. Mm. And a, a, a young man named Anatoly Sharansky, who they sent to prison for 10 years, mm. nine years. And they wanted to finger me as his CIA handler. Mm. And they said that publicly. On the other hand, they realized that if they tossed me out, they would probably lose a real colonel in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so what they decided was, and it's all in this document, it's an amazing piece of work, they, they discredit me. So what they did was they attacked me, and I mean publicly, and I can tell you that it was, um, it, was it wasn't, frightening is not the right word. It was, it was it's harassment. We, I, I, once this started to happen, I, for example, never drove because they would stage something, an accident. Or I kept my hands in my pockets when I was on the street. I assumed that everything that went on in my life, they were tracking. And, but my wife and I, even though, even though it, we were told from somebody in Washington that we should, you know, it sounded to me like it was a, a, a warning from somebody in the government, CIA probably, that we should leave. And my wife and I, we walked around the garden. Uh, we talked to a British diplomat who was a close friend of ours and decided not to. And why didn't we leave? We didn't leave for a variety of reasons. One is we knew if we left, at this point we had two small children, I mean two infants. If we left, we'd feel relief and then long-term real regret because we'd fled ah secondly we said look i'm an american right i mean how much can they really do to me and third uh my wife's father was a diplomat oh and we knew that if push came to shove we could get his attention Mm -hmm. and that's what we finally did and so it was clear that a provocation was coming and um, eventually, when it became clear that my father-in-law, who was ambassador to Czechoslovakia and a U.S. delegate to the Helsinki Accords, when it became clear over the telephone that I said, you know, you really ought to tell your counterparts that your son-in-law is the journalist that they're attacking, stop like that. And two weeks later, they arrested the Los Angeles Times correspondent on the street and took him to La Fortiva and interrogated him for four days. As as the person that they, you were they going were, to be. I, they it could have been me, is the, you know, is yeah. the story. Um, so, you know, was it terrifying? No. Why? I can't really explain it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what I would have done if they hadn't had me on the street and taken me to La Fortiva and had interrogated. The good news was that my Russian was good enough so that I would know what they were doing. Uh-huh. Um, but I've thought about it a lot, you know, over the years. We had, we had a, uh, a cousin who was a doctor here in, in uh, Michigan, and uh, he was a Lithuanian extraction. He promised his family that his father would come from Lithuania, that he would go back and take back to Lithuania, uh, to the family left there, some money and supplies and so what happened was he went back and uh, to, again to make a long story short he 
evaded the KGB for, or the Lithuanian example, mm -hmm. uh, 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 parallel to that, uh, for a couple of days and went off and gave the money to the, to the family way out in the country somewhere and came back. They arrested him. When they arrested him, they brought him in and he was interrogated for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. They started off by accusing him, this is a Michigan doctor, mm -hmm. of being a British spy. Mm -hmm. And this went on for some time and the interrogator was speaking, I'm not sure which language, Russian. He spoke Russian. Yeah, well, Lithuanian but, at that time would have spoken Russian. But yeah. um, Val also spoke Lithuanian. Uh -huh. And uh, when they couldn't get anywhere with him as a Russian, uh, with the Russian, speaking uh -huh. Russian to him. And so the Lithuanian came in and started speaking Lithuanian. And at this point, Val, who is incensed that, uh, they, sure. that they were cooperating, called him a quizzling and, and uh -huh. swore at him. And, and they got so tired of this that they took him and they took him to church so he could make a pilgrimage to some church, and then he put him on the plane to come home. Well, that was better than the alternatives. <laughs> better than the alternative, that's right. We're going to take another break right now. We're talking to Peter Osnos, who's got a fascinating history of being around the world. First, we've now been talking about the Washington Post uh, as a foreign correspondent. Now we're going to talk more in a bit about his experiences as a publisher and an editor of books. This is John Smetanka, Run With Respect, and we'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Peter Osnos, who is a, started off from, his parents started from uh, Poland before the Second World War. He ended up in Manhattan, uh, lived in New York. They thrived instead of uh, being broken by the experience. Uh, and they produced uh, him, uh, himself, who has got a great background. And he's taken it to journalism. He's an observer an observer who translates and brings out those experiences in his own uh, experience to, um, through his writing. So, uh, this is John Smutanka, and with respect, Peter, mm -hmm. you didn't stop with being a journalist, that is a, a reporter for the Washington Post. What else did you do? Well, um, I've been at the Post for 18 years. And I had been a correspondent, and I was one time foreign editor and also national editor. And then I kind of, um, I had the good fortune to meet the head of Random House, who came to visit us in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And he said as he was leaving, you know, journalism is not a fit profession for a grown man. If you ever get serious, <laughs> give me a call. And then I eventually did. Uh, and why did I do that? I came to the understanding that I... Everything I did going forward would be more of what I'd already done. So the instinct was, what would happen if I did something different? At the time, it was unusual to do that. So fortunately, my wife is supportive, and <laughs> she could make her own way with her professionally. So uh, I took up the offer to go to Random House, and I went to Random House as an editor. And over 12 years at Random House, I became a publisher of one of their imprints, one of the Random House imprints. And I came to specialize in books by very prominent people, mm -hmm. just because of my journalism background. It's just that as how it evolved. So I ended up working with four uh, people who became or were presidents, um, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And I did um, books with uh, people like Robert McNamara. I did his book about, in retrospect, which was his great Vietnam book. I uh, worked with uh, people like Clark Clifford and George. Sar I mean, I just had a hell of a run, uh, to be honest, on those kinds of books. And then I did a lot of books of journalism. And why was it possible for me to do that? Because I'm a reporter, basically. 
And what I didn't know was that, that in journalism, you get the story, you write the story, and you go home. In publishing, you get the story, the story gets written, and then you sell it. And somewhere it turned out that I kind of liked the selling part as mm. much as I liked the reporting part. So that's how I ended up being a publisher. And uh, then I left. After 12 years, I kind of felt that I had fulfilled my random house plan. Mm -hmm. I'd become, uh, for curious reasons, the world's largest publisher of crossword puzzles, which was bizarre because I don't do them. Oh, no. Uh, well, I'm not a crossword puzzle guy. So uh, because I published New York Times crossword puzzles, which I turned into a business. And when I realized that my legacy was crossword puzzles, I kind of and, – and then the truth <laughs> of the matter is I had done Trump's first book and I did Trump's second book. And then they came to me and said, would you do the third? And I said, I'm out of here. So okay. that was the end of that. Let me stop you for a second. You've named uh, a number of superstars in, in the world of uh, public attention. I'm interested. I know that each one of them is different. And your reaction to each one of them may, was obviously different, I suppose, because you're a human being and they, and they are different human beings. However, there's a commonality that I'd like to probe on people like, let's take the four presidents that you work with. Now, you mm -hmm. actually talked to these people. I did, yeah. No, they were relationships. All right. And they, so, in varying degrees. I would say that I did a bunch of books with Jimmy Carter, spent time with him in planes, uh, really was, got to know him well enough to be able to say so. Trump, uh, because it was before he was, you know, we made him famous, unfortunately, I mean, or fortunately, depending on your point of view. Um, I was watching something which I now understand. I was watching the beginning of, of okay. something, an emergence of something. Bill Clinton was more at a distance. Uh, I did two books with him. One was a campaign manifesto in 92, and then his 96 book when he was running for re-election. Mm -hmm. But I can't say that I really got to know him in any, in any true sense. And the Obama experience was remarkable because when I met him, he was a young community organizer in Chicago. And he wanted to, he had started working on a book and he ended up coming to us with this book. And we published it in 1995. And it wasn't until 2004 when he gave the keynote speech at the Democratic Convention that it emerged as this extraordinary thing and became a four million copy bestseller. Mm -hmm. So um, when I knew Barack, he was young. Uh, I could see what he was like. Mm -hmm. I came to know him as a writer, and he is a writer, a real writer. Uh, I came to know Jimmy Carter as a guy I sat at the table with and, uh, you know, went in the kitchen and said grace with him before we ate. And um, I, I would not say that I – and I, I, I saw Trump for – what I saw in Donald Trump, everything you see now, but now it's on steroids and he's the president. All right. Now, that's the point I want to stop for a second. <clears throat> There is a commonality, even among these diverse personalities. They're human beings, okay? Mm -hmm. um, what is, can you identify as an observer, what were or are the commonalities between four presidents? Are there any, or are they so completely different? Well, they are very different, but what you ask yourself, particularly when, you know, as I got to know Jimmy Carter, is how did a kid in Plains, Georgia, heave himself out of bed in the morning and said, not only uh, could I be president, but I should be president. Where mm -hmm. does it come from? Where, right. is the, where is that sense of, 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 prom of, of possibility and, and, and the ability to project yourself in that way? And you, it's very hard to discern with somebody like Jimmy Carter, who, who he literally, I'm telling you, we, I was in Plains. Their home in Plains, where the Carters lived after they left the White House, where they had lived before they went to the White House, was very simple. I mean, it wasn't humble, but it was a you know one-story house with a, a comfortable. I think the single most boring job in the in the Secret Service was protecting Jimmy Carter in Plains because <laughs> there's nothing much to do. My friend was uh, in a protective detail for him at Plains. Uh, about the time they had the killer rabbit uh -huh. uh, that, that attacked his boat. Well, he, you know, they did a lot of weightlifting, the, the, the Secret Service guys. But so the, the fascinating thing about um, Carter is where that ambition came from. And, of course, 
it's very hard to know. One of the things that I spent a lot of time with Carter trying to understand was his, the importance of religion. Uh, we had a very, very interesting, complicated experience with, he used to do the, uh, every Sunday morning he would do the, at the Maranatha Baptist Church, he would do the homily. And I had the idea of collecting the homilies and putting them into a book. I said, this will be easy. I'll just get the transcripts. And, and, and when we put them together, um, I realized that they were liturgy. He thought they were deeply personal. I said, they're actually cold and standoffish because they come right from the Baptist text. Okay. And that was a very tense moment between us. I had two editors working with me, one who was an observant uh, Protestant, the other one was an observant Jew, one Old Testament, one New Testament. And we sat at his table, and I said, you've got to show us why religion is personal for you and not just this liturgy from the Baptist text. Mm -hmm. And he talked about it, and you know, and it became a, the, the basis of the book. He he said that what we were doing was trying to take his religious teachings and religious uh, homilies and making him into just a good guy, that we were scrubbing all the religion out mm -hmm. of it. So it was a process, and we went through the process of coming up with a way of explaining that his devotion to religion was much more than the liturgy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It was something that came from inside, and you know, what does it mean to be born again? All those kinds of things. The thing about Carter is he's a hundred percent authentic, in the best sense. Mm -hmm. Trump is a hundred percent authentic in a very different way. He is who he is. What you see in Donald Trump today is Donald Trump, unvarnished. Uh, he still lives over the store. Uh, never goes anywhere that doesn't have his name on it except for political rallies, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. People think he's kind of all over the place. He's incredibly, in his own way, disciplined. Who thinks up all the names he calls people? Crooked, you know, Hillary or Pocahontas? He does. Who manipulated the finances of the businesses to end up paying almost nothing in personal income tax? He does. Trump has certain qualities of a sort of drive and fierceness that people make a mistake in underestimating, and they've certainly done that in this case. Jimmy Carter was a man who really was authentically himself, a fellow from rural Georgia who just had this sense that he could do it all, and he did in his own way. Barack, as a young man, when you met Barack in his 20s, you could tell that this was an unusual fellow. There was a coolness about him. When he was working on his book with us, I always said that the only thing that we felt about this book was we wish he'd been more trouble because then we would have had more stories to tell. Mm -hmm. He just was, you know, he got it done. He's cool. He's uh, thoughtful. Uh, he's elevated in a variety of ways. But again... How did a guy with the name Barack Hussein Obama, whose father basically passed through town, mm -hmm. how did he ever end up with the, the, the you know, instinct, the devotion, the, the ambition to be what he is? It's a, an amazing story. And one of the things that used to fascinate me about working with these people is you know, exactly the question you asked. Who are they? Robert McNamara. Um, you know, he was, by any measure, people looked at him and said, he's the guy, you know, screwed up Vietnam so badly, and we're, you know, no one's going to forgive him. And, you know, but he showed up uh, in my office, we acquired his memoir, and he said, well, I'm going to write a full memoir, I'm going to start with my birth, and I'll talk about my years at the World Bank and my fort. And I said, no, go and write your Vietnam material first, because that's all people are going to want to read. So he went away, he came back with 100,000 words. <laughs> and that was the book we published in retrospect. And when we published it in 1995, it was huge. It was a number one bestseller, and it was the biggest story in the country, largely because people were so angry. How could he do this 25 years after? Didn't he know at the time? Of course, he did know at the time. 
So the question was, what was it about Bob McNamara that you know, when he was a young, when he was a member of the cabinet and, and, and this guy everybody thought was a robot and he knew the war was wrong. What, he understood that the war was probably not going to go well in 1966. But why didn't he speak out? Why didn't he do something? And, you know, you have to understand a person's character. And the purpose of the book, in the end, was him coming to terms with it. And the classic line in the book was, the war was wrong, terribly wrong. We owe it to future generations to explain why. And that was the purpose of his book. And when it was published, among the other things, the New York Times editorial said, Robert McNamara should not have a single night in which he does not feel torment for what he did in Vietnam. But for Bob McNamara, this was a way of finally relieving himself of the burden that he'd been carrying around. So <clears throat> you've talked about that special something in all of these people. I want you to, we're going to take a break in a second, but I want you to, come, when we come back, can you crystallize it in a sentence which covers all these fascinating people who are world figures, uh, uh, creative, destructive, whatever. There's got to be one a sentence because you're an observer. And you are a well, reporter. If you give me five seconds, I'll think of one. <laughs> All right, and I'm, and I'm going to take a break right now for more than that time. This is John Smetanka, Ron, with respect. We're talking to Peter Osnos, who is, first of all, a journalist, Washington Post foreign correspondent, Washington, uh, uh, New York, I'm sorry, uh, Moscow and Vietnam and, and so on. And now we've been talking about his publishing days and his contact with fascinating strong personalities. This is John Smetanka. We'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Peter Osnos, a reporter, a journalist, a, an observer of uh, the great and the great events uh, tracked by the, the uh, Soviet uh, uh, apparatchiks in uh, Moscow, uh, and later a publisher, some of the great fascinating people of our time. So this is John Smetanka. Back on with respect. Okay, you've had five seconds or more. Peter Osnos, you've observed these fascinating people, strong personalities, great effects on, on the destiny of the world and the, the, the reality of the world. What do they have in common? I think the thing that they all have in common when you see them up close is that they are all human beings. And what does that mean? It means they have a degree of insecurity in various ways. They have a belief in their own mission in various ways. You cannot be these folks if you see your life in confined terms. Somehow you have to believe you can be anything. Now, where that comes from is very hard to say, you know, because in the case of Jimmy Carter, it might have been his mother. In the case of Barack Obama, it was his, uh, just his mother and his grandparents in, in, in Kansas took this Barack Hussein Obama. In Donald Trump, we all know that there was a very complicated family story. But they perceived themselves in grandiose terms. But when you get close to them, you find out that they all put their pants on one leg at a time. And one of the reasons why I was able, I think, as I th reflect on it now, to work with all of these people was I never felt like I worked for them. I always worked with them. And they needed me to get the job done for them. And so I was actually able to see them. I'll give you one funny story, Jimmy Carter's story, which is a, the first book I did with him, he and Rosalind were doing together. 
and it was called Everything to Gain, Making the Most of the Rest of Your Life. It was the book that set out the... And what I discovered was, uh, after a few months where they were working on it, that they were having a terribly hard time. He's a fast writer, she's a slow writer. Carter said subsequently, and I thought at the beginning that he was kidding, but he meant it. It was the toughest period of their marriage. Hmm. So I went down there and I sat with them at their table and I said, look, here's the only way we can deal with this. Every paragraph that he writes will have a J in front of it. Every paragraph that she writes will have an R for Rosalind. And Carter then said, you know what? That editor came down from New York and it was our referee. He saved my marriage. <laughs> so uh, that's, not, you know, that's not a technical skill. Um, it's getting to know people as people. Um, when Bob McNamara, uh, there was a terrible one night where he was speaking at a at Harvard, and a GI uh, at the back started harassing him, haranguing him. You know, you're a war criminal and so forth. And and he uh, finally snapped and said, "Shut up!" And of course, all the air went out of the room. Everybody was horrified. There were cameras and so on. Next morning, he comes to see me in my hotel room. I think he's going to tell me it's over. You know, he's wearing a raincoat and his walking shoes. And I said, he's going to say, I can't do this anymore. It's, you know, I'm just, you know. No. What he said was, I have to do this. I'm going to continue to do it. And we offered him security, but he didn't want it. And he went from place to place in his raincoat and his walking shoes on his own because he was on a, a you know, an effort to explain himself. And that's human. I think that what I saw in so many of these folks was that ultimately they have all of the qualities that any one of us has, plus this ambition or vision or determination to be important. And uh, in the end, they succeed for reasons that sometimes, you know, don't always, aren't always explicable. Are they brilliant? Ne not necessarily. It's different. You know, I did books with both Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar two of the greatest basketball players of all time. That's different. They have a skill that they execute. And that's different from being a politician. Which is harder. Well, I sure as hell couldn't be a basketball. First time I met Kareem, <laughs> actually the first time I really met him, it looks like looking at the sheer face of a cliff. <laughs> you know, and he goes... And he, he, you know, he was, co and, and Magic was a very different kind of guy. I mean, he was very warm and friendly, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and Kareem was very, you know, kind of standoffish. Yeah. yeah. But they had a, a you know, a, a skill that was unique. Mm -hmm. Politicians don't have a unique skill unless, you know, they, they render what they do uniquely, each one of them. Barack, it was his eloquence, it was his dignity. Trump, it's his drive. Clinton, it's his actual political skills that enable him to kind of communicate with people in a way. But, you know, what we know about Bill Clinton was he was deeply human. <laughs> yeah. Right? I remember. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, one of the amazing things about Barack is the skill that he had as a family man, his devotion to Michelle and the girls. And there's nothing phony about that. It's genuine. And in his own way, and we've all had to live through it, so is Trump. There's nothing about him that's contrived. That's who he is. And the mistake people make is underestimating how much he is what he is. That's, that is a, a true statement about many people in, that I've come across in life, in politics, in law, and um, in traveling around the world also, that Unfortunately, some people take into a relationship a, a, con a conception, a bias, that if you're from Kokomo or if you're from New York or you're from some place or other, you must fit into a category, preset category in my own mind. So the guy from Kokomo must be an Indiana farmer. Uh, the guy from New York must be a, a, a mafia don, and the fellow from uh, D.C. must be whatever. And that's when people get in trouble, mm -hmm. when they let their biases affect their judgment and their, huma their own humanity. 
And I've, I've seen this over well, if and over you, again. You know, if you go back to this question of what is an observer, um, since I wasn't judging them on any basis other than who they were, because I was watching them. Mm -hmm. I wasn't asking them to be their friend. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, they did not become friends. Um, I mean, you know, at various levels, the relationships were, I never considered myself a friend of Barack's. Mm -hmm. um, that would have been ludicrous. Mm -hmm. But I was able to understand him through his work as a writer and then watching his political career. I was not surprised. And when Trump was running for president in 2015 and everybody was treating him as a joke to begin with, I kept saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Because you're underestimating his ability to reach people in a certain way that ultimately got him to the White House. And now, you know, they, everybody says, well, he was doing it as a marketing device. He may have been, but he's the president. In early 1861, after the first shots on Fort Sumter, Jefferson Davis was elected the first, person, first president of the Confederacy. In his introduction to um, uh, to Jefferson Davis, uh, Alexander Stevens, who later became vice president uh, for the Confederacy, uh, used the old Roman phrase, which I think is so applicable to what you're talking about, and that is, he said, the times and the man have met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's certainly the case with these presidents. Mm -hmm. uh, what Barack had was a unique capacity to appeal to the American elites and the American minorities. And what Trump has is the capacity to go for not the elites, although the rich ones kind of like the fact that he cuts taxes, and not the minorities, although there are always going to be a few, but that really big group of people who are, for whatever reasons, a sense that they're being left behind. Mm -hmm and that they have a, a grievance. And somehow Trump, despite all of his various characteristics and mm -hmm. personality, makes those folks feel like he's theirs. And that's, how do you explain that? I listen to it from in cafes and restaurants and all kinds of places, and you're right. He has that ability. And it's it's... You know, uh, you know, great actors, great musicians, great athletes, something in them is talent. Mm -hmm. And in these politicians, the ones who become president, there obviously is inherent talent of a certain kind. But what I'm saying to you is that when you look past the talent, you find human beings. Mm -hmm. And those human beings have the flaws and insecurities and overconfidence and family issues. I mean, everybody's got a family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting to hear Joe Biden say, hey, you know, my son had a drug problem. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of us who have drug problems. And that, to me, kind of changed the subject about his son. Mm -hmm. So if you accept people, as I, I guess I've always done, as humans, even if they're funny, even if they're important, even if they're fancy, uh, you can get away with a lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time, but I, I want to give you a chance to uh, do the regret. Was there anything in a very short period of time that you regret about about your Well, your I'd career? say the only regret I have in it is, is that it took me so long to realize just how extraordinary the story of my parents was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew the headlines, mm -hmm. but now that I've studied it, and see the extraordinary courage that they showed, the resilience, the luck, that I never appreciated as a child growing up because I never had to, what it was that they had accomplished. And my regret is that I never talked to them enough about it. Mm -hmm. If I had it to do all over, I'd sit them down. How many people in our audience have come to the age where their parents have passed and they're sitting here thinking, 
I wish I could remember all the details of the story mom told me about her parents. <clears throat> well, that's why I now say every time I get an opportunity, write it down or put it in, you know, or talk it out. Do something to preserve the stories of your life. Peter Osnos, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and uh, I've learned a lot, and I hope that uh, so have our listeners. Uh, this is John Smetanka on With Respect, and remember, we're on every week uh, on, Saturday, on Sundays and Thursdays. So until next time, remember our mantra. If you show respect uh, to other people, they will show respect to you.